Cavalcade Audio Productions presents Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Book Two, Street Candles. Today's installment, Chapter 39. They told me I was psychologically traumatized and would need help. I thought that was crap. They told me I would need cognitive biochemical therapy for mental and emotional issues. I thought that was crap too, though I didn't really understand what they meant. But I didn't care either. They could do whatever they wanted. They were going to anyway. They were fleet, and the galaxy lived in fear of them or something. It didn't matter. I was told that Carmi and some of the others were staying on station and could visit regularly. I didn't want anybody bothering me, though, and I said so. They said okay, and that maybe it was for the best. Fleet Command still had some unresolved issues with my case, even after all this time, and they didn't want me being coached by other people. I guess. I don't know. I wasn't listening. Fleet was handling all my medical procedures and therapies. On the surface of it, that made no sense. I could see them giving me emergency surgery and all that if they were the first to arrive at Griselda, which was a mystery on its own since they were further out and Deskew was, well, motivated. But why all the long-term medical attention? My own insurance, through my union, would have covered it. Clearly, they weren't going to let me go until all their questions were answered. I began to wonder if I could leave if I wanted to. I mean, I didn't seem to be under arrest since there were no armed guards outside the door. There was a media console over the bed, but it was for consuming only, nothing interactive, which made it seem crippled, like me. But not for long, no, no. That's what my physical therapists all said. What I usually said in return doesn't bear repeating. Actually, that might be doing myself a disservice. I wasn't a jerk to everyone, not always anyway. I knew I was being a bit more like myself than usual, but I'd been through a rough time, and nobody seemed to understand that. I had some really bad dreams, about Barlow mostly, but they gave me medication for it after the first few times and that part got better. There were uniformed traumatic stress specialists and uniformed grief counselors and always doctors, doctors, doctors performing tests. I had people just to help me work on my upper body strength and coordination and other people for my legs. There was a team just for my abdomen, and they made me do crunches and stretches and such. I really had lost a lot of weight, and I was looking good, even if I felt sort of broken. But these people weren't always there, because some days, and after a while most days, I didn't want to see anyone. 
I smiled and endured, but oftentimes I just couldn't handle it. Eventually, I wanted out. If I wasn't a prisoner, then they had no right to hold me, since I also wasn't fleet personnel. Lieutenant Skinny Lady Proving She Was Tough came in at one point and threatened to have my license pulled if I didn't start cooperating. I called her a few choice names and told her to go for it, take my license. I knew they wouldn't because that would force my union to formally inquire about their ruling on the matter and all the proceedings would then go public. I never saw her again, but they started bringing around tramloads of others to work me over. What was my connection to Baron Deskew, to Alan Small, to Delay Maharn, to a string of names I'd never even heard before? And it just went on and on. I actually found the interviews funny for a time, because they were all so serious. But I eventually got irritated. And then I started lying, which got them irritated. It was a merry-go-round, and it rapidly became intolerable. One group came in, just like all the others, and set me off at last. I don't even know what they said, but it was just an excuse. I took a swing at one of the officers and threw water in the face of another, cursing them all. They had no right to keep me, I shouted, and I demanded to be released. The next day, they told me that my union had been contacted and an attorney was on the way. Also, that the interviews had been suspended because my recovery was stalled. Later that same shift, they came for me with syringes and a couple of burly orderlies. I screamed at them. I screamed for my lawyer. I screamed just to scream. I got one shot in the leg, one in the butt, and a small one in the arm. I fought and swore and punched at them all until I got sleepy. Things were a lot better when I woke up. My leg and butt were sore, not my arms so much. But I didn't snap at the nurses who walked in and I didn't attack the doctors. I was quite pleasant with everyone actually whether they adjusted the bed, cleaned the room, or were just checking up on me. I even worked with my therapists for a bit that day, and one of them made me laugh. That felt kind of alien, but not too bad. A couple of shifts later, my lawyer finally made an appearance. He was a round guy in a suit by the name of Priest. He revealed that he'd been a commercial gunner himself before taking the bar exam. I was impressed by that, and we talked for over an hour. He explained that I had fallen into something of a legal gray zone. I had been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress and severe depression, and for a time they were even concerned about antisocial behavior induced by the gene therapy, which is a rare but documented side effect. They were certain the therapy had altered my stress reaction anyway because I wasn't presenting classic symptoms, and that had delayed treatment. Had I been a member of Fleet, they would have given me injections to adjust the neurochemicals in my brain as a matter of course. Military personnel don't get a choice about those things after all, and it would have been over before it even started. 
But as a civilian guest, a fleet euphemism for non-military personnel held without charge, it was not technically legal to administer drugs that altered the brain, unless there was a clear danger to oneself or others. When I became violent, they had the excuse they needed. Even then, inducing treatment against my will might have opened up a can of legal worms, so they decided to reach out to the Union at last, and that's when Priest got involved. It was he, acting as my legal representative due to my growing mental impairment, that had signed for my neuroadjustments. The racking work of months or even years of long-term chemical and psychiatric therapies back in the old days was completed in a single night. Or mostly completed. Follow-up injections were usually required to keep the demons completely at bay, but I was past the worst of it, they said. So that was me all sorted out. The situation with Baron Deskew was another matter. It was being classified as secret for the moment, but not, apparently, as a direct threat to Alliance interests, which meant... Well, no one was quite sure what it meant. Fleet seemed to be undecided as of yet if this situation was going to be swept under a stellar rug or if someone was going to be hung out to dry. I was a someone, so fleet lawyers were seeing if the noose fit around my neck before framing a court case. To that end, they brought in a judge advocate, specifically tasked with building a case for piracy. I laughed out loud when priests informed me of that, but he wasn't kidding. If this military lawyer could spin my ejection of the missile at Superior as an actual attack, I could be in real trouble. While the Ains Senate had enacted laws that allowed privately owned vessels to arm themselves for the express purpose of self-defense, it was Fleet that oversaw it all. A trial like this would be entirely within their realm of authority. And a licensed gunner facing a piracy charge, regardless of the exact circumstances, would spread a pall over the entire industry. Priest and I were, therefore, ready for a big battle. But after a few pointed sessions, the lieutenant from the judge advocate's office sent a notice to the effect that they were not pursuing charges. Insufficient evidence, apparently. I also surmised that Fleet High Command had specific desires surrounding this case, and I knew then that I had a choice coming up. Legally, they couldn't keep me unless I was placed under arrest or bound over through a holding order for the sake of territorial security. In either situation, priests could file a writ of intent, which would force several Senate subcommittees to jump in, and nobody really wanted that. Priests thought that a deal could be made with the current crop of investigating officers. If I cooperated with their investigation, it could be over quickly and more or less painlessly. In exchange, they'd see that my gunnery license remained in good standing. So on his recommendation, I agreed. The debriefings began in earnest the very next day. Uniforms, civilian contractors who looked like government spooks, and a couple of others I couldn't place. Priest was with me the whole time. I'll never speak out of hand about lawyers again, because the guy was a trooper. 
first order of business was the signing of several NDAs with the usual battery of financially scary consequences for breakage, along with the added attraction of prison time. Then they went back to the beginning. Actually, they went back to before the beginning and asked me about my career. They brought up the incident in Realtool. They asked about my family way back in Jarden, wondering why no one from there had come to see me while I was convalescing. I figured that wasn't their business, so I refused to answer, and they let it go. Though no one actually came out and told me anything, I was able to get some information out of them by asking clarifying questions to their questions. Priest had an intern at his office do some research, too. Putting it all together, a clearer picture of the Barlow events began to form. As Candy's quick look into the guy's shipping traffic had indicated, the Baron had money troubles. The economy of his vast holdings had been in the dumps for nearly two decades because his father, the old Baron, had made some shady investments. This guy died soon after, having eaten something that didn't agree with him. His gun barrel. The new Baron had been educated at one of the better business schools over here in the Alliance. He had modern ideas and thought he knew exactly what was needed to jumpstart the Descu economy. Cash. By all accounts, though, his dad's reputation had soured serious investors on the Descu name, despite kilometers of tax incentives and baronial condescendence, that is, matching funds. It's possible to hide these kinds of troubles over there, for a while anyway, but Ain Intelligence had somehow learned that Baron Descu was getting ready to sell off vast personal assets to other noble families and business interests. This would have represented an erosion of regional power, which is a thing they monitor closely. Yet as the years passed, it never came about. Maybe the Baron had devised the plan himself, as he had a reputation for craftiness, or perhaps it was his lackeys. Either way, looting an economy that was not his own became his tool of choice to obtain that sought-for cash injection. He had family investments on Barlow, too, which would have been ruined if the plan had succeeded. Thank goodness he'd had the foresight to heavily insure against loss by civil unrest. Whoever sold him that policy was likely looking for a new job. He sent in a team of his best agents, posing as military and financial experts from over the border. Each of these people had years of experience in covert ops. Kryl Bacon and DeLay Maharn were but two of many. Bacon had probably intended to steal the money for himself from the moment he was told of the operation. Maybe he courted Maharn deliberately as a calculated thing, or maybe they grew close when they discovered themselves kindred spirits. Either way, Descu assigned them the related jobs of fomenting rebellion and embezzling from the government. Taxes, emergency services, pension funds, infrastructure, health care, all of it came under DeLay Maharn's ultimate control. The Baron even successfully backed a dictatorial Ain Politico for the presidency to act as a lightning rod for discontent, 
and Thomas Billings came to power. Paranoia and classic, brutal repression were among that guy's chief talents, and it played into Deskew's plans nicely. In fact, it played too well. When Billings became entrenched on the world, Ain Intel decided that a little opposition to the man would be a good idea. The Orthos had been running a guerrilla war from the very start, of course, but they were zealots and hard to control. Instead, Ain approached one of the dictator's most trusted generals, Zarello Beckus by name. That probably took some salesmanship, but operatives transferred funding and supplies, and he eventually broke with the government to start his own movement. Advisors, trainers, and weapons were smuggled in. The auto guns arrived late, likely on that tanker Griselda had missed by a few hours. With the vague understanding that any new government on Barlow would work towards active membership in the Alliance, Beckus seemed like a good choice. Another despot in the making, sure, but he'd be their despot. But the money, oh, that was quite the plan. No one was exactly sure, but it was looking like the single biggest heist in history. The details would be hidden from the public for a long time, but eventually, scholars of that sort of thing would be able to do a comparison. Success for either Deskew or Alan Small would have been a devastating financial blow to a huge number of system economies and corporate interests on this side of the border. Ultimately, Fleet's only interest was regional stability. Charles Prime's economy was set to improve, and Beckus was tickled pink to be sitting at the Ain table. This allowed the Senate to work towards a major buildup of the entire system. For good or ill, Barlow had become strategic, and Fleet was getting a new starbase. That shabby old high dock would be obsolete in a year, as bigger, more modern structures were brought online. Fat construction and supply contracts were being bought and traded like fish at a bazaar. In five years' time, Barlow would be nearly unrecognizable. And that didn't sound bad to me in the slightest. One shift, a few days into the new debriefings, and after all the deadpans had gone home for the night, I was lying in my hospital bed watching vids. The evening meal had come, and I was trying not to notice how it tasted. A knock at the open doorway had me look up at a fellow I'd never seen before. He was fleet, but unlike the investigators, wore the simple flight suit of an enlisted man, a sergeant. He appeared to be in his twenties and had a curious look on his face. Hi. Hi, I replied. You lost? No, I... And he looked back out the door, as if cautious of being seen. Are you... are you that Ejok guy? I've never met another one, so I guess that's me. And you are? Um... Would it be okay if I didn't say... I just looked at him for a moment before it sunk in. You aren't supposed to be here, am I right? Why is that? Well, this is the high security section, isn't it? 
Is it? I didn't know that. But I guess it makes sense. How'd you get in, then? I, uh, I know somebody, but I don't actually have clearance. Okay, I shrugged. So you're a man of mystery. What's up? He stepped closer, dragging over the chair and sitting uneasily. This was so weird. Look, I, uh, I'm assigned to the 103rd Assault Wing on, uh, well, uh, on a certain battleship and, and... Buddy, look, you can speak plainly. You were never here, okay? He suddenly looked relieved and actually sighed. Oh, right, thanks, thank you. Um, yeah, so, um, on my ship, I'm second gunner's mate for the 14th Battery. Fleet gunner, huh? Come to lord it over the little guy? Classy. And I started to roll over in bed, away from him. Where did they even get these people? No, 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 you don't understand, please. I turned back, because he did seem to be in earnest, though over what I couldn't imagine. Look, I was on the initial jump into Barlow, he began, and we were getting live sensor telems the whole time. We saw you take that drone down. It was... it was amazing. What are you talking about? I sat there and just looked at him in confusion. Our lieutenant says he's never seen anything like it. No one has. It's all the defense channels throughout the wing have been talking about. Command cut our DFD right away. Uh, that's the display showing fine-grained analyses of the data. Someone from Intel told them to, probably, but we still saw the raw feed. Nobody can figure out how you pulled it off. And in a little bucket like that... Pulled what off? I don't know what you mean. I lost that fight. The ship was hit. He stared at me incredulously. You don't know? How could you not know? He was looking at me the way I must have been looking at him. Then he just laughed and shook his head. <laughs> Ejok, you took down a Marquis-class star shark. One of those things can take out a freaking carrier on ambush. Fleet considers them the baddest drone model in space, and you wiped it out of the sky like it wasn't even there. Oh, it was. I countered bitterly, but enthusiasm is deaf, I guess, because he just rushed on. Now on the raw feed, it just looked like a big plasma flare before the thing vaped. You have to tell me, one pro to another, what kind of weapons were you packing on that ship? Nothing special. Come on. Ugh. Look, I sighed, feeling inadequacy growing in equal measure to his excitement. We just got lucky. Some of us, anyway. We lost a hand. A friend of mine died. Oh, oh boy, I'm... I didn't know. They, they don't tell us anything. He looked honestly embarrassed and completely contrite. He just had one of those faces that showed every emotion. I just need to know, we need to know what you used. There's no weapon short of a nuke that can take one of those things down that fast, and the raw data didn't show one going off. I didn't take it down, I almost shouted, because his dopey adulation and clumsy apology suddenly felt insulting, and I just wanted him to leave. It took itself down. I put up a polarized stutter 
on a 0.05 millisecond cycle between our new packs. That put a plasma bubble around the ship. Then I targeted the drone's bow on an identical but alternating cycle using the lantern single beam mode. I don't understand, he complained, mystified creases over his eyes. A star shark can't be hurt by little lantern guns. The armor is crazy on those things. Just listen, all right? The drone used a particle cannon. Those push out magnetized beams, just like the new packs. Since my beams were focused on the machine before it fired, its attack locked onto one of those and followed it right down to us. The shot went around the ship on the plasma shield, which would naturally flip the particle stream's polarity. That would cause it to follow the other lantern beam, ejecting it right back out at the drone. DEWs aren't made to absorb power, only expel it. Surge guards on the thing would have overloaded and burned back into capacitors. And if those went, then its reactor would go, he finished for me. That's amazing! I mean, how did you, how could you know that would work? Where did you learn to do that? I wanted him gone, so I told him about the man with the homemade boat, and he whipped out a data pad to take down the information. He was simply floored by it all and stated he'd grab those sims right away and show his superior officer. He shook my hand, thanking me, then offered congratulations on such an amazing victory. But I just jammed a pillow over my head, and he finally left. After a time, I guess Fleet felt well enough assured of my cooperation that they allowed me visitors again. Rena stopped by one shift, but I was on my way to PT, and she couldn't stay. It was nice seeing her, though. Carmi and Ailareta visited as well. Ben Roggenston was in Staffra system, hunting up parts and services for the ship, which was in dry dock here in Margus, undergoing repairs. They had news. Fleet had lent its crypto code-breaking capabilities to the job of cracking the recovered data block for the new People's Freedom Government of Barlow, the latest name. Naturally, the Blues were eager to start the business of running a planet with full coffers, but they lacked the equipment and expertise to get at the codes themselves. That allowed Fleet to force some conditions for said service. One of these, of course, was the new government's support for a permanent fleet presence in the Choral system. Another was the awarding of a finder's fee to Griselda. This seemed more like a payoff to keep us quiet than it did anything altruistic, but it was far from unwelcome. Of course, we'd still be held accountable if we flapped our gums, but nothing beats the motivation of both a carrot and a stick. Since the money wasn't coming out of any fleet budgets, they were pretty generous with their demands on our behalf. I was told the reward amounted to something like a fraction of 1% of the total recovered assets, which I thought was pretty lousy until they started using real numbers. For a tramp freighter, it was a fortune. The offs had already paid off the ship's entire build bond and put down a hefty deposit on docking fees. 
Extensive repairs were needed, and they were in the works. The crew was... in flux. Dell and Sherry were gone, of course. Candy and Ira decided to settle down over on Harris in Sandalwood System, where they had family. They planned to start up a shipping company of their own. The offs had made percentage cuts of the reward to each crew member, and theirs was enough to keep them in the black for some time. They were excited, apparently, and I was happy for them. The others chose to stick with the ship. Money was nice, but no other place was home. But that still left a few holes in the roster. Ben Roggenston had taken on a new apprentice about a month before, a boy who'd been raised in an orphanage here in Margus and had just barely made his majority. The kid had only had basic mechanical training in primary school, but he seemed eager and hardworking. It was mostly about personality at this stage, and the older man seemed satisfied that they'd get along. The married couple we'd pulled off the high dock actually asked to hire on, collectively taking over for Dell, who'd really been doing the job of two or more. It seemed they were enthusiastic and fun to be around when not terrified, and brought a domesticity to the ship that promised to fill in the homey gap left by Candy and Ira. Syndra had repatriated to her homeworld back over the border, but was in frequent contact with Carmi, mostly regarding me. She seemed to see me as the derelict uncle she never had, or wanted, but it was touching to hear. I sent her off a quick video note when I got the chance, which was reviewed and passed by the censors attached to the investigation. The offs had a percentage of the reward for me as well, but also an offer. They didn't hit me with it the first time they visited, but a day later we met in the hospital's quiet cafeteria over tea and coffee to discuss it. An owner? It's our opinion... A Lareda supplied, as if the two of us didn't dislike each other, that this could be a good move for everyone. You weren't the only person we'd interviewed on Oasis that day, Ejok, but I doubt we'd be alive to talk about it now if we'd gone with anyone else. I have the impression that the Fleeties think the same. But I don't have anything to put into the ship. Your percentage of the reward is substantial, Carmi said. She showed me a number on her data pad, and I almost had a heart attack. You... you have to be kidding! I could retire on this! How much money did that data block reference? No one's saying, but Mr. Small must have really tried to clean them out. So, Aylareta pursued, you can use this bonus to buy in as a full partner. And we've gone ahead with steps regarding Griselda's reclassification as a secure merchant. That was your idea, too. I know you and I haven't always gotten along, but I'm willing to make an honest effort here, if you are. And Gasto's okay with this? He brought it up to us, Carmi stated with a grin. Owner of a ship. The holy grail for so many spacers. It was the ultimate aspiration, in a way, and nearly unheard of for professional gunners, as we didn't get the regular bonuses and command opportunities that other specialties did. 
It was an opportunity unlike any I'd ever dreamed. And unsurprisingly, I didn't hesitate in answering. The surprise was in the answer itself. No. Thank you. Thank you both. Tell Gasto I'm flattered beyond words, but... No. They were silent for a moment, and Elareda had his sour face back on, which I thought suited him best. Carmi was perplexed, hurt. But, but why? Is it the timing? You'll be out of here soon, Ejok. The investigation is wrapping up from what I've been told. And we still need at least another hundred days for Griselda's repairs. We're having a top-of-the-line gunnery station installed, and you have to oversee... I'm not coming back. My contract was for six months. Technically, I'm no longer your crewman even now. I don't understand, Captain Maynard said to me, her eyes betraying pain. You want to leave us? I was looking down at my hands, and I didn't reply. I couldn't. I daren't. This is the highest compliment this ship could ever pay anyone, Chief Pilot Aylareda stabbed at me. And you spit on it. Why am I not surprised? Ejok. The captain's voice was quiet and sad. He saved us with a rock, Carmi. They watched me. She watched me with terror, remembering. He did that while I just stood there. Please, don't do this, she whispered from somewhere deep in the misery. I held up my hand to show them. I held it up desperately, and I hoped they could see it because I couldn't anymore. There were tears in my eyes, tears down my face. This hand... I was holding out this hand for her. You couldn't have saved them, Ejok, the captain of the Pelican-class bulk merchanter Griselda declared, pleaded. You couldn't have saved her. For God's sake, it's not your fault. You think you're the only one grieving, her fellow owner accused, a snarl in his eyes, though his tone was as even and professional as ever. Seriously, you barely knew Del or Sherry. How can you do this to us now? It was a good question, but I didn't reply. Because I knew that, despite how they felt, they either already understood me, or they never would. And either way, they had family to mourn and a ship to rebuild. Those priorities spilled over from lives that simply weren't my own, and responsibilities that weren't my own. And no matter how lightly they stepped, their losses and grief and anger would trample wholesale over memories and pains that were very much my own. And no one, no matter how I loved or respected them, was allowed to do that. No one.
You have been listening to Street Candles, written and read by David Collins Rivera. You can check out my site at cavalcadeaudio.com or drop me an email at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called Icor by Trunks and can be found on soundcloud.com. The Street Candles theme is called Undercover by Karsten Holy Moly and can be found on dig.ccmixter.org. This production is otherwise copyright 2013 by David Collins Rivera and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. Street Candles is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person living or dead or any particular place or situation. Thank you for listening. Take care. Take care.